Hello and welcome to Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm podcast. I'm Lee Knott and we're going to call this episode 18. I had a numbering error early when I started the podcast and um, and so anyway it drives me crazy that when I open it it says the wrong number of episodes compared to the episode numbers and so I'm uh, counting the last one is 16 and 17 so that this one can be 18 so that those numbers can match and I'm just OCD enough that that really matters to me. So welcome, this is part two of the um, uh, managing mites. Uh, just talking about managing mites. As I said last week, this is something that I have kind of put off talking about because it is, it can be such a loaded topic. It can be very divisive and it can stop conversations which is unfortunate because you and I might might disagree on what's best in management. You and I might manage our apiaries differently. We might have both results. But if we stop our conversation on that one topic, then we lose all the other things that we can share. I think the classic example of this is when new young beekeepers go to um, maybe an established club meeting that's a lot of... Uh, older or old school depending um, beekeepers more conventional agriculture that's what I should say it has nothing to do with age <laughs> it um, because I would be among those old beekeepers but it has to do with your uh, vision of whether you want to go in a kind of conventional direction and by that I'm just like the um, vegetables you buy at the store or at the farmers market you know there's conventional agriculture and then there's organic agriculture and there's some variations um, in between those but those are kind of the two poles if you will of uh, farming and I think that could be the same in beekeeping and that maybe we not uh, demonize either side there's anybody that has been successful at beekeeping for several years has something that I can learn from. They have tips, they have techniques, and what they do about mites, I'm not gonna lose all that potential to learn from them um, because we don't manage the same way. And new beekeepers, I would urge you to just develop an ability to not say anything about what you're gonna do about your bees. <laughs> you know, develop an ability to go, to just take it all in and think about it and make your own decisions and feel solid in your decisions in terms of defending them to other people. You don't have to defend them to other people. You know, you don't have to discuss them with other people. You can be in an absolutely, you can be an information vacuum and get lots of information and think about it in your own mind and make decisions. Now. The second half of that is you make decisions, you try it in your bee yard, you look at what happened, and you make changes based on that. If you decide to do something, it works fabulous, it's going great, then keep it up. And in a few years, if it's still going great, <laughs> you can actually tell other people, hey, this is working for me. Just because it works once does not mean it is a reliable technique year to year. Um, I know this, there have been things I've tried that work so good the first time. I'm like, wow, this is so great. Uh, raising really late summer queens is one of these things. You know, I've had years where I raised these um, beautiful little mating nukes, so I had young queens to overwinter as nukes, and then um, it worked great. Then the next year, I tried to do it at the same time, 
and because just the flow was different, the pressures were different, the weather was different, it was a, it was pretty much a total failure. And so it's not that there's anything wrong with the technique I used um, or the timing in particular, but now what I have to do is look at the context of what's going on in the weather before I make the decision of how late I'm going to go with my last round of, of queens. So um, I would urge you I would urge you to just hold on to it and work with it for a few years before you say this works to other beekeepers, particularly beekeepers that are new to you. Um, that's just a little personal thing, um, but I I found that to be helpful. I can I found it to be helpful that you don't have to go back the next year and go, you know what I said about how this worked like a charm? Well, it didn't work. So if you just work with it, experiment, become a real experimenter, but also be honest with yourself about your results. And if it doesn't work, you know, don't just blame it on, oh, I must have a farmer around here using chemicals that are killing my bees. I hear this all the time from people in my own neighborhood. And um, <laughs> luckily they're not in bee flying range, but they're in the same uh, valley that, oh, well, I think, you know, someone was using neonics and my bees died and that was the reason. In my mind, in my inside voice, I say to myself, you know, I, that's possible, but there's also 10 other possible reasons. One was because you were a new, brand new beekeeper. One was because you didn't check on your bees. One, you know, I could go on and on. There's a million, sadly, there's a million ways to kill your hive. Um, and if the, the best precaution about that, in my opinion, is to really constantly educate yourself and be honest about your results. So if your bees die and you don't know why they died, you know, don't make up things and tell other people this is why your bees died. Just say, I don't know why my bees died. But then for yourself, really investigate, you know, look, do the autopsy, study the pictures of, you know, disease of what, what does that look like? Because the only way you can make progress, beginners, is if you're honest about what you're seeing. Now, as a beginner, you don't always know what you're seeing, you know, so part of that process is to really educate yourself. Um, I have a hive right now that's that's just, I don't know, what's wrong with the brood pattern? Um, they don't have a high mite load, uh, but I don't know, I, I'm not sure if I might be seeing some, some uh, sac brood virus or some European fowl brood. It does not rope, so I know it's not American fowl brood, thank goodness, um, but Anyway, I'm going to have to do some studying on the side-by-side -side comparisons of those illnesses so that I can feel sure that I know what's going on with that hive. Um, I've already uh, culled the queen and requeened with what I hope is a stronger uh, queen, but we'll see. You know, we'll see if that queen's genetics is strong enough to um, overcome that. The other thing that is on my side in that one particular thing is that, you know, we're just starting our good spring flow in here in the high mountains and so a good flow sometimes in good weather can can really uh, turn a hive around and then like I said I've already requeened. See I've already gone down a tangent street and I'm let me look back at my actual notes. Okay so I I think that in the article I read last week from Dr. Megan Milbreth I believe you heard this and I believe you heard this you're gonna hear this in some of the references I'm gonna share with you today but there seem to be four aspects of um, having a sustainable apiary. And let me just pause there. When I say sustainable apiary, I don't mean that every hive survives every winter. That is just not feasible in a natural system. In fact, 
think about it in nature you know think about those little you know pictures of the little sea turtles you know there's a thousand little sea turtles running down the sand to the ocean and then you read the rest of the article or or on the video and it says only two of these will survive you know to adulthood that's how nature does things you know nature's perfectly happy with a plant that puts out a gazillion seeds and if three of them survive that's cool and they're going to be the three best ones and that <laughs> leads me to another thing that is the rationale allegedly ra the alleged rationale of some of the just let bees die school of treatment free beekeeping that just let them die the survivors will be the strongest ones and on a large scale that's true in a natural system, in a natural scale, you know, unmessed with by humans. But like I said last week, we we absolutely, you know, throw a wrench in those gears of nature because we are continually importing bees from other places, from the southern states in particular, uh, but bees that are not localized. So any um, natural selection that our wild or managed colonies that are is happening in those, it is deleted when people bring packages in which as you know is a, is just a huge flow of packages come into areas and to me that's really unfortunate so i'm gonna as i was about to say the things that seem to go into live having live bees regularly and not having to buy more are localized genetics bees that are adapted to your place um, and then the genetics of the bee in terms of their hygienic behavior, their disease resistance, the environment that your particular apiary is in. So if you are next door to somebody that brings in package bees every year, you're going to have a whole different can of worms than a person who's way out in the country. Now, they might have a different can of worms, and they do. <laughs> I can verify that. But, um, you know, your setting, if you're in an urban setting versus a rural setting, you know, versus a rural a rural farming setting versus a rural forest setting, um, all those are very different situations. Whether you have two hives or whether you have a hundred hives, very different um, management goals and and everything but every everybody wants live bees and what what i would what i wish would switch to our our measurement of success is instead of did my hive did my hives survive it is is my apiary sustainable and by that i mean you do not have to go outside of your immediate surroundings and i mean you and your beekeeping friends or your beekeeping club there in your county to get bees from your area you know that to me would be a sustainable beekeeping situation because when you are using those regular bees and if uh, uh, local bees and if everybody was using those local bees and if everybody was doing selection and making splits and letting there's either their splits mate locally or raising queens locally and and everybody was selecting their best then our gene pool would get better and they would be specialized to some extent over time uh, to our area. So the idea of a sustainable apiary is different than did my 
did this hive, like I, each of my hive stands are named. So, you know, did chicory survive the winter? Did um, chapel survive the winter? You know, they're, they're each uh, have their names. But the real measure of success to me is, did Five Apple Farm have to buy bees this year from anybody else? And thankfully, and I'm knocking wood here and um, swearing to put my back into it, that I hope that will continue to be because that is why I feel a measure of success in my apiary is because since starting in 2010, I have not. I have made my own bees. Now, I have I buy queens because I want to bring in diverse genetics. I am in a fairly isolated area. So the the there is the real possibility if I just take my own bees and just select, 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 because I am actually somewhat isolated. Um, I mean, no one's truly isolated, but I'm about as isolated as you can get in the East. Um, then there is the potential of a genetic bottleneck. And so my little bees in my valley might be doing great, great, great. But the next disease that rides in on the next freighter ship coming from Asia, you know, they might be completely have no resistance whatsoever. So at least in my mind, <laughs> I want to have a really diverse gene pool here. Um, so I, I do go looking for breeders that have interesting queen genetics, particularly um, chemical-free bees, and sometimes uh, fully treatment-free bees, depending on where they are. Let me take that back. Okay. Oh, gosh, I'm jumping all over the place per usual. This whole term, treatment-free, um, it drives me crazy because it is totally non-defined. There is no set definition of treatment-free. It just depends on who you're talking to and what they mean by treatment-free. The example I'll give you is the large uh, Facebook group. It's, a, it's huge. And the podcast, uh, Treatment-Free Beekeeping. On that Facebook group, or at least in my experience of that Facebook group, which I'm barely on there anymore because I found that you couldn't have many conversations because on that Facebook group, there are lots of people who consider absolutely every single thing you do to that hive a treatment. They consider feeding a treatment. They consider um, moving, a, you know, moving a frame around for a particular reason a treatment. It's like if you do anything accidentally, that's good. But if you do it for a reason, then that's a treatment. If you um, split your bees to make more hives, that's not a treatment. But if you split your bees to give them a brood break, which will set back the mites, then that's a treatment. So to me, that's not a workable, uh, it's not a workable framework for me personally, because I want to work with my bees. I don't just want to look out at a pretty hive sitting on the far side of my yard um, and not do anything to them. If that works for you, okay, but that's just not what I want to do. And to me, the enjoyment, uh, because maybe it's because I come, you know, kind of from a remote farming background, um, I love to select for a better bee. This is from childhood. You know, my one of my first childhood projects was raising guinea pigs and selling them as pets. But then I decided when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old, I decided I wanted to breed for a smaller guinea pig. And my grandmother, in her great tolerance, I was raised by my grandmother, let me, she let me have a little outbuilding on the farm. And this was my guinea pig farm. And I, over a few years, selected for smaller guinea pigs. And I made progress with that. <laughs> so everybody's got their background. And I, I do notice that a lot of people that are working on selecting for more disease-resistant bees um, 
do have uh, farming backgrounds and have raised other livestock and and so it's it's an interesting um, thing to attempt to because the genetics with bees are so much more complicated than than any other livestock and even that word livestock that on the treatment free Facebook group they just they will not let you call them livestock it's like they're wild animals and I, I guess the reasoning is they're just wild animals living in the yard and um, anyway I, I don't want to dog them out because you know if it works if they're finding it works for them fine but I'll be honest with you I find some of the most adamant people on those channels um, do not have what I would consider a sustainable apiary and that is the ability to maintain that apiary with its own stock not having to bring in replacement bees or catch swarms because if you'll notice um, sometimes it's like oh catching swarms catching swarms now I, I love to catch a swarm particularly if it's out of my own yard because I've worked hard on those bees and I want to keep them um, you know on the farm somewhere so uh, swarm catching is great but but keep in mind that when you catch that swarm you may or may not know the the history of those bees how loaded they are with mites um, there's many things in just picking up random swarms that that if you've got a good solid yard that's going well uh, you might want to be careful with if you pick up a swarm from a different area about bringing them to your home apiary because you're bringing whatever that swarm has now typically um, you know swarms tend to be fairly healthy because they come from a hive that was robust enough to swarm but that also describes you know every Georgia package bee that somebody overfed <laughs> you know they they can swarm and that's just not something I want to go to a lot of trouble much less climb a tree for um, but if you are catching bees in a uh, area where those could potentially be feral bees or they could be your bees then swarm catching is fabulous but as a as if that's what I'm dependent on to keep my yard stocked with bees then in my opinion I'm doing something wrong um, a sustainable apiary to me is that I am able to keep my bee population going I might have losses some years I might have bad losses but overall I'm able to keep that going and I just wish that that goal of a sustainable apiary was more um, uh, more the goal than just did hive A or hive B um, live so anyway um, I guess the overall view from if I had any advice to give I guess obviously I do since I'm talking to you every week <laughs> but take it or leave it but um, is to choose your management style uh, choose your approach learn it well experiment with it and then whatever you see from your trial with it respond to that um, you know change something make it better or go oh wow this works like a charm I'm gonna keep doing this you know whichever uh, all of this is helped with good notes in fact in fact I spent the morning um, updating the uh, I have a little spreadsheet in my computer where I keep up with every hive what the background is who the you know what genetics are in that hive um, what I've done to that hive because sometimes that's interesting you know to look back 
and it never seems like it's going to matter at the time, but you, but I, I really try to put exact dates that I did things, exact dates that I did a split, exact dates. Um, like if I take population out of one hive to populate a, a new, for some reason, then I make a note of that because otherwise I'll forget and I'll go back in that hive and go, why didn't this hive have enough cat brood? Well, Lee, it's because you took it out, you know, a, a week ago. <laughs> but um, so respond to what you see. Keep careful records. I would urge you not to make you know, black and white knee-jerk reactions. I have heard on a lot of talks from beekeepers who tried out being chemical-free one year. They had a lot of losses, and they were like, you know, to heck with that. I can't do that. And they went back to full-fledged, uh, you know, hard chemical use. And that doesn't have to be the way it goes. It does not have to be either or. And the evidence I'll give you for that, I have a beekeeper friend. Um, she's been in it for several years. And she mentioned to me the other day just how long she had been going on and she has not had to buy replacement bees. And and I it struck me as um, she and she only has, I think, usually she keeps between two and four hives, or, but it's more like four. Um, I think she sold some hives and went down to two, but then went back up to four. But anyway, um, she uses... Uh, she, first of all, she has good localized bees. She got them from a, an older beekeeper that used to be in our area, sell bees in our area. She has split them every spring to get fresh queens. Uh, now she started splitting them. Um, not that she wants more hives. She's got all she wants, but she started so that she can sell them to young beekeepers in our club. She wanted to give them away. And in their cer there's certain circumstances, in my opinion, where that would be appropriate. But I think it is a real incentive if you learn to make splits, learn to make good, healthy little splits. You know, you sell them and, you know, they sell for in your area, you know, from 150 and up. Um, I've seen, I saw lots of them this year in other areas for 200. In our area, it's about 180. Uh, for a nucleus colony and you know it will cheer you up that day if you sell your nucleus colony which is a beautiful uh, local healthy make sure it's all those things well populated nuke and you sell it to a bit another beekeeper in your club even if you only charge them 80 or 100 bucks they're getting a fabulous deal and you you get to feel good and you got 80 or 100 bucks to go spend on the beekeeping gadgets and um or plants, depending on what you like. Um, so I urge you to think about that, that even on a, you know, totally friendly scale, not to get commercial, I think it's fair to charge people money for your bees. And if, you, I mean, you have money in the frames, and, and now I'm not speaking to people who are doing this for a sideline, I'm speaking to just backyard people who feel kind of bad about uh, selling something. But if you've got a good product, and I hate to call them product, but you know what I mean, um, then to, to to trade them for money or to trade them for trade for something is, is a worthy thing. And it also, it keeps value on those bees. It, it keeps people aware that, you know, if they kill their bees, it costs money to get more bees. So um, maybe that makes people want to learn uh, more. But anyway, she has been doing splits. She's just started selling splits. And I realized that uh, what she does, she is religious about doing mite counts, which I've been in great envy. I've been kind of bad about that some years worse than others. Um, and she, she does her mite counts. She treats in the, in the late summer 
with an organic product. I know she uses Timol. I'm not sure about other, but I do know they're all organic. And she has had good survival for, I think, going on like, I don't know, eight, eight, seven or eight years now. And um, so that is a very, a very low chemical uh, approach. And she's having good success. Again, you know, the the making more hives, as my friend Mark Smith of Flatwoods Bee Farm says, being able to make more bees, make more hives, that is the key to being able to be sustainable. And it's the key to being able to, at least for me at this point, um, to be chemical free. So I want to turn here to turn you on to some more things to listen to, because if you're a podcast listener, then I figure you probably are listening to other podcasts. Um, Like I said, I mentioned Megan Milbreth last week. Um, She is interviewed on a podcast. I think it's called Pollination, like P-O-L-L-I-N-A-T-I-O-N. It's out of, oh gosh, it's a university in the Pacific Northwest. And they do an interview with her on a podcast. I'm going to put these in the show notes. They may not be in the show notes today, Sunday. It may take me a day because the sun is out and you know what I have to do. Um, But she has a couple of YouTube presentations. And then last week I gave you a ton of links of her work. Um, I listened to a couple of great podcasts this week that are from the, the past few weeks. One is on the Contrary Beekeeper Show. The Contrary Beekeeper Show. I think those fellas are out of Ohio. And um, I haven't listened much, but I'm just starting to download those. They interviewed uh, a North Carolina neighbor of mine, Mark Smith, who is of Flatwoods Bee Farm. And he's been a chemical-free beekeeper, like me, since about 2010. Uh, He's wonderful to listen to, very down-to-earth, just tells you like it is, and tells you what he's done, tells you what works, what hasn't worked. Very refreshing to listen to, because it's also really, he's got a solid rationale, and he tells you what that is. Um, It's a great episode, also, because the two fellows that are interviewing him, I'm... some, I may be getting this slightly wrong, but I think one of them is a is a conventional commercial beekeeper. I think one of them may use organic treatments. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, these three guys have this really open-minded, non-reactionary conversation about the pros and the cons of everything they do, about how the, you know, how you can move from one method to the other method. Um, and it's it's really lovely that nobody... Uh, nobody cuts anybody down for their decision. You know, there's none of those little, you know, snide tone of voice. There's none of that. It's lovely. And what it really reminded me of is how much we have to gain if we just learn to talk to each other and not have to judge each other. Let's stop being so judgy. (laughs) And, um, and listen and try to understand. And I don't have to agree, but I can try to understand what your rationale is. And just from that process, I'm going to learn something, even if it is, wow, I don't want to do it that way. <laughs> or, wow, that's a great way to do things. And I wish I'd thought of that earlier. Um, but so we can really learn from each other. And that episode of The Contrary Beekeeper, where they interview Mark Smith, is a beautiful example of a really open-minded conversation about bee management. I was very impressed. Bravo, guys. Another podcast that I just loved is from Mandy Shaw of the podcast Beekeeper Confidential. 
And she interviewed Sam Comfort out of Anarchy Apiaries, uh, which is up and down the East Coast. Um, Sam Comfort, I've mentioned him before. He's very interesting to me uh, because he, you know, he doesn't use any chemicals. I, most people would call him treatment-free, but he his one of his YouTube presentations is treatment-free but not stupid. And again, he's he has a rationale that he's using, and it's solid. And um, he's really working to try to make bees as simple for it to, so that anybody could slap a box together and have some bees and so that's pretty fun to see on the YouTube um, the the boxes that he makes which are just little boxes and uh, or comfort hives and um, with barbecue skewers that as bars it's it's pretty funny but hey it works and he raises a ton of queens and um, and and he has them tested at the the bee lab in North Carolina, and and all that's just really interesting. So so he's solid, you know. He is he is he's walking his talk, uh, and it's working. And then Mandy Shaw is a great interviewer. She really asks good questions, and um, they have a good conversation. So you will really enjoy the Sam Comfort episode of Beekeeper Confidential with Mandy Shaw. But those are great. So that should keep you busy. <laughs> um, and uh, I want to say thank you um, to the folks who have written me. I, per usual, I am behind on answering emails and messages. This is standard for me, unfortunately. So please don't ever write with an urgent question because I'm like the worst email responder in the world. I really do respond, but it can be a long time. Um, my friends joke me that you know I'm the only person they know that will respond to an email two months later you know that wasn't time sensitive but I do want to respond but I I do keep a lot of irons in the fire so thank you so much um, I do enjoy when people send messages or write on the Facebook page and tell me where they are and so this week I've heard from Northern California I've heard from Crossville Tennessee and other parts of North Carolina it's just really fun um, to hear from you several of you have questions and I will get to those in the next episode I'll do some question and answer and uh, in the next one I'll do question and answer and read you the article that I promised a couple weeks ago the Tom Seeley Darwinian beekeeping article which is pretty interesting well I'm coming up on 30 minutes I hope you guys have a wonderful week or days ahead, depending on when you're listening to this. Thank you so much. The Facebook page is Five Apple Farm, Bees, Honey, and More. You are very welcome to message me there. And if you're patient, I really will write back. And I love to hear from every one of you. The podcast overall is approaching 10,000 downloads, and that's just amazing to me. So each episode uh, is being downloaded between about 400 and 700 times and I'm amazed at that I'm amazed that there are so many beekeepers out there listening to podcasts and I thought I was the the only one not really but I, I thought there weren't many of us but it turns out there's a lot of us and it's just delightful to be learning alongside with you and to be part of this beekeeping community with you so so keep learning keep reading um, share with me any interesting things that you've discovered or tried or wonder about and particularly resources that have been helpful to you, I would love to hear about them. Have a great week and I'll talk to you very soon.